What's up? This is Gabriel Machiret, and welcome to show number four, numero cuatro, here at Startup Founders. Today, I have a great guest, someone that is going to actually show us how you can actually find a solution to a very complex problem in a very complex industry, especially when you work and live in that industry. In many situations, I've seen founders coming up with solutions to problems But our guest today, this is completely a different level. His name is David Cox. He is one of the founders and CEO of QHF. And QHF is technically a solution that helps the catering industry in big levels. Okay, we're talking about planes, we're talking about casinos, we're talking about cruise ships, all those things that for us, normal human beings, when we jump on a plane, when we fly from here to, I mean, to... Tokyo, like I'm going to be doing with my kids very soon, we have no idea how complex it is for airlines, for chefs, for the staff to be able to feed us. And in our case, in this case with David Cox, David actually knew completely how complex this was because he was part of the industry. And not only that, in this show, you're going to learn how David even stealthed himself into the competitors to try to understand how they were working and even got jobs in different areas of catering just to understand even more and more and more the industry and the problem. So therefore, he could actually build a solution, a solution that wasn't easy to build, a solution that makes it software and hardware. And every time I hear the solutions where there's hardware and software, I mean, I automatically get stressed because that is never never easy. In this show with uh, with David head up, Heads Up, there's a bit of audio problems that I face uh, during the interview, but hopefully you'll stick around because it's so much information and so much wisdom uh, of David that is absolutely worth it to stay. So yeah, welcome to show number four today with David Cox from QA Chef. Okay, so before we continue is the startup quote of the show. And this one is from Mark Cuban. We all love Mark, okay? Mark is such a badass uh, from Dragon's Den or the Shark Tank, whatever you call it. And his quote is awesome. Don't start a company unless it's an obsession and something you love. If you have a strategy, an exit strategy is not an obsession. So let me read that once again. Don't start a company unless it's an obsession and something you love. If you have an exit strategy, it's not an obsession. And I think that is awesome, especially because I usually hear people when they talk to me about apps, because I actually work in app marketing with a few startups and and founders, the part of the conversation before they even mention why their app is amazing or how they want to make an impact, they talk about eventually someone is going to buy this app. Eventually, uh, someone is going to acquire this. Our goal is to be acquired. And although I appreciate the vision and the goal, sometimes I wonder if that vision and that passion is there for the right reasons. There's nothing better when you talk to someone that they're so passionate in what they do. And in this podcast, one of the things I love, and you can actually see between different guests, the ones that are completely crazy mad in love with their startup. There's so many startups that are completely crazy. And when I talk to the founders before the show, I think they're going to be crazy because their idea is crazy. 
And when I talk to them, they're so passionate and they're so in love with the idea that I end up becoming a fan. So that is that great obsession and doing something that you love that obviously Mark Cuban mentioned in this quote. So let me finish with the quote once again and then we continue with the show. Don't start a company unless it's an obsession and something you love. If you have an exit strategy, it's not an obsession from Mr. Mark Cuban. And thank you so much for listening to Startup Founders. Let's continue with the show, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, David, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have you in on the show. I was browsing a little bit about what you do, but before I tell, I mean, the audience what you do and who's David Cox, why you don't tell us to the audience of startup founders, who's David Cox and what's your startup? Okay. <clears throat> Hi, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, David, David Cox, I'm um, the founder and CEO of a company called Advanced Catering Solutions. Uh, I'm actually a non-tech founder. Uh, I've been an executive chef uh, for some time. <clears throat> I've been a chef for 20 years and I uh, started off in fine dining restaurants and moved around the world in corporate, private clients uh, and then ended up in high volume catering. So, um, yeah, in large scale events, but then also uh, I ended up in airline catering. So I was in charge of some pretty big airline catering facilities and uh, in, doing, uh, in doing that, I encountered a whole range of profound issues that uh, the caterers experience with regards to their logistics and their food safety, um, all sorts of different areas. And so that spurred me on to finding solutions and building them ourselves to make the lives of chefs easier. That's awesome. And I actually, when I went to, I mean, to your website, I was overwhelmed slightly. I'm going to be completely honest. I went and I was like, oh my God, this looks super technical, super complex. And now you're telling me that you are non-technical founder. So that makes the whole interview way more interesting. So before we, we start with that, tell me a little bit about what, I mean, what exactly a chef, I mean, in an airline does that the chef in the local restaurant does? I mean, what's the difference between those two kind of, of, of professions or, or jobs? Well, the, the main difference is that when you do anything in very large volume or in a high-risk environment, such as for aged care or cruise ships or, or airlines, um, then there's a requirement for you to have to prove your food safety compliance to regulators or to clients. So I guess because the risk is just that much higher that you're really going to hurt an awful lot of people if something goes wrong. So there is a requirement for you to have what they call a HACCP plan, H-A-C-C-P, which is um, stands for Hazard Analysis Critical Control Points. It's a program that was initiated by NASA uh, for the moon uh, expeditions. And so what you just say basically NASA, it looks right? at every... Yeah, NASA came up with it when they were realizing that there were a huge amount of different, say, hardware parts. And if one of those parts were to go wrong at some part of the chain, um, then the whole mission could be catastrophe. So they came up with an idea that there was a, a series of critical control points. And if you imagine, say, a, a metallic bolt which goes into a spaceship, then perhaps the uh, amount of uh, metal alloy, the ratio of metals in the alloy would make a difference or the tensile strength or the production facility. So they identified critical control points. And if you can make sure that they are followed or you can prove that they are, have been done correctly, then you can make sure that there's a, a low degree of risk. So they applied the same theory to food safety. So if you're an airline caterer, you actually need to have a food safety manual, which details critical control points from 
the point at which you receive the ingredient all the way through to the customer eating the food. And the problem is that around the world in all of these facilities, they do that by pen and paper. Um, and the chain is actually, despite the fact that it's a very small time from you know, receiving an ingredient and cooking it, there are up to 12 different CCPs. Um, and most of them are to do with time and temperature to make sure that the, you received the food and it was at a safe temperature and you cooked it at a safe temperature. Uh, all the way through to the customer. So the fact that it's all on pen and paper means that there is a huge reliance on labour, but it also means that a lot of those documents are either inaccurate or incomplete or fabricated. So, Wow. So, I mean, so to make it plain in plain English, I mean, you're trying to prevent to kill the whole plane, right? I mean, that when you give me the, prawn, the, the, the prawns, you don't kill the whole plane, I mean, going to Hawaii, right? Well, yeah. that would be good if you didn't do that, yes. Wow. So, I mean, you just destroyed my, my meals for the, for the planes right now. I mean, when I travel I mean, internationally, because this is, this is extremely complex. I mean, this is not an easy job. And I didn't know this was such a, I mean, a, I mean, a complex process, I mean, to feed, obviously, I mean, so many people. So, so you're, you're working in these, you start working in airlines, and you're starting to find all these problems that are happening, right? And it's how mm -hmm. you came up with this sucks to I'm going to be the hero of the industry and change this. Um, well, it was very much from my own sense of frustration at the fact that there are no solutions out there. Um, when I was in charge of a big airline catering facility, I re recognized that there was just a, a really, really profound problem uh, with this whole process. So I thought, well, well maybe I'll throw half a million dollars at, uh, at a solution because there must be some really amazing technical solutions out there. But I started to look and I realized that they didn't exist. So, <clears throat> and I, I went and interviewed chefs in... I went and visited cruise ships and big airline caterers, um, multinational corporations, and I thought that they must have some custom systems that I'm simply not aware of. But everywhere I went, they all had exactly the same problem. Uh, and yeah, so I realized that there was a massive gap in that particular niche market. And um, at the heart of my motivation was because chefs have a really stressful job. It's not a very, very nice uh, <laughs> Um, career necessarily it's, it's a huge amount of stress and I thought well if I can just take away this element of stress and make things a lot easier and a lot better then that will help other people such as myself yeah but then then you put that stress on yourself right I mean I love it like you're doing this to save stress to I mean to other chefs but now you're a chef and now you're going to start a new a new business so it's like double stress right uh, well I guess I've got used to stress and I, yeah, I'm pretty okay with it <laughs> Okay, um, but I, I'm, I've always been really focused on solutions. I think there's, uh, I've come up with all sorts of different solutions for different processes, and this is just the same, but it's with a technical solution. So, yeah, a bit of a different Was challenge. it a bit, I mean, how, how was the fact that, I mean, that you contact, I mean, a cruise ship company that obviously is a, is a million dollar business, okay, and, or a billion dollar industry, and they're telling you, no, there's no solution for this. We don't have anything here. Do you think eventually, okay, this is going to be way too big, I mean, of a problem for me to, to solve? Um, not really, because I think that most of these sectors that we're looking at, they all operate in pretty much the same kind of way. They're all doing similar things in the same kind of way. They might have slight operational differences or subtle ways of going through their logistics, but essentially what they're doing is very much the same as each other. So uh, the core product that we're building will 
remain very much the same for most of our clients, but there will always be a degree of customization because no uh, catering center is exactly the same. But there's no reason why we can't transfer this system from airlines and conventions, centers and casinos, which is what we're looking at right now, to other markets as well. Okay, great. So you, you realize that you, there's a problem out there. I mean, you are the chef, you understand their language, you are inside the industry 100%, okay? Mm. But you have no idea about technology, right? Correct, none. Okay, so <laughs> where do you, I mean, where do you start? I mean, do you what? Do you go to a, I mean, to a freelancing website or how does the process start? Um, well, I, I'd been carrying around the seed of this idea for the whole time, well, the four years I was in charge of an airline catering facility. So every day I was looking at my idea or to, you know, toying with it and thinking, well, if there were to be a solution, if it could exist, what would it look like? And that took me, yeah, a good three or four years to really work out how it could be done because the problem that I'm trying to solve is an inherently human one. You know, there's a huge amount of humans involved at every stage and humans are very good at finding exceptions to the rule and coming up with interesting solutions themselves. But when it comes to actually systemizing it, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. So, yeah, I, I, put, I got a graphic designer to sketch out the device that I think we needed to manufacture. I took that to a 3D CAD specialist. He drew it up into 3D designs. I went and found an electrical engineer and he built a prototype. And I had a friend draw up some wireframing for some software and... I've been on that road ever since. It's, I love how you make it sound so simple. Like I found an electric engineer. <laughs> okay, like like yeah, I was making a cake. I mean, obviously, all these steps are um, they have to be challenging because you have to start pulling money of your own to from the graphic designer. Tell me a little bit about the moment when you went from four years of thinking about the idea to okay, David, let's stop mocking around. Let's put money on the table. Let's build something. Let's build a frame. I mean, how how did you went from that moment? of planning because some people plan their whole life to, okay, screw it. I'm going to be doing this. Um, it's a good question. And it's hard to sort of you know, identify singular points in the evolution, I guess. But um, I, I was always on, on a mission to, 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 to do this. It wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, I, well, I did do some research, as I said, with different chefs around the world and did a huge amount of market, uh, sorry, competitor analysis to work out, like, because I couldn't believe that someone hadn't done this before. I thought there's got to be someone. Um, but then <clears throat> then I guess the point which I found that no one had done it and, and I had my conviction about the fact that if you could solve this, then it would just be a profound um, paradigm shift in the market and open up a huge commercial opportunity. Well, then I guess, you know, I, I, was, I was committed to it. <clears throat> um, I always knew that we would have to get some form of investment because, I didn't want to foray into hardware, but I realized that the the ability to provide the value proposition to our clients relied on a kind of a device that would help them to do that. So you can't, you know, I mean, as much as I love to bootstrap the entire thing, I knew that it was going to take some investment to do that. So I got a couple of uh, MVP grant, grants from the New South Wales government, and that certainly helped. Um, put some money of, of myself in, of course, um, but then I, um, I had to face the real challenge of trying to raise funds in a, in a hardware-focused startup, which was in a sector which no one understood, uh, in a pre-revenue, pre-product state, which was yeah, um, a long uh, challenge. <laughs> Very difficult. Now, when you were looking at the competitions, you were talking to all these chefs, going to the cruise ships, and you found that there was no competition 
of course, that is exciting, but isn't alarming at the same time thinking, what am I missing? I mean, am I the only genius <laughs> in the world that is coming up with this idea? Or, or maybe 20 people tried before and they realized something that I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I, I actually struggled with this question for a long time myself because it just didn't really seem to make sense. Um, and I came to the conclusion that there was a couple of, uh, a couple of issues uh, or a couple of reasons for the fact that it hadn't already existed. Um, one of which is that the very people that understand that there is a problem there are the very people that don't have the means to build a solution. So we're talking about the chefs themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're remarkably good at cooking, but few of them manage to break out of the kitchen. You know, once you're in the kitchen, it's often the rest of your career. Uh, and also, um, the the fact is that that it's just it's just a very very hard problem to solve. Uh, it, it's yeah, I think it takes a singular sort of understanding of the process. Um, yeah. And this process can be applied more or less worldwide. I mean, you're telling me that this is not just an Australian issue. I mean, you can actually apply this to, to anywhere or is it just based on only in Australia? No, well, in fact, our, our domestic market is very small. We, we, we think uh, our, our, our market's all very global. And in fact, a lot of the customers that we're talking to, which are all enterprises, they're all international. Very few of them are actually Australians. When it comes down to it, yeah, Australia is not our main focus. Wow, mind-blowing. And obviously, I mean, you're going for these enterprise clients. So, I mean, so here you are, you, you're a chef, you know about the problem, you ne have never done hardware, and now you have to raise funds, <laughs> put more stress on yourself, and your potential clients are enterprise clients that obviously you need to have some kind of skills to, to reach out to these people. How difficult was to, to I mean, first approach one of these, one of these potential clients? Uh, initially, it wasn't hard necessarily to approach them because I had contacts already in these industries um, or I knew people that did. But uh, so getting in contact with them wasn't hard, but they're generally very, well, very busy. You know, they're busy running around trying to make sure that they're, they're doing their jobs properly. But, uh, but also, they, the, the chefs in these kitchens, they, they've got a huge amount of different problems happening around them. Um, and they just get used to the fact that there's just, there's just stress and there's just problems and it's not fun. Um, so convincing them that, that this was a problem as well, um, that they all knew it was, but they just. Um, but actually reaching enterprise customers wasn't the hard thing. It was, uh, it was actually being able to, um, to reach the right decision makers. And, 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 I, and I hadn't dealt with enterprise before. So I was aware that there was many layers to these companies um, and I had to work my way through the, the different decision makers, which was a new thing for me. And obviously it takes a long, long time. But I, I love the fact that you said that, I mean, that the chefs, that is the people that are going to be using the product, are used to this chaos, right? I think that, I mean, we, we identify, I mean, kitchens and being a chef with this constant chaos, everything, I mean, hot, they're running around, they're nonstop. So obviously for them, this is another part of, the, of their mess of their life. And therefore, I mean, embracing a solution is not a priority. Am, 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 I, am I reading this right? Um. Yeah, well, I think you are, you are right because because they, they all love, I mean, all of my clients, they all love the concept, they love the, the solution because they inherently know just how, uh, I'm trying try to swear on a podcast, but they all know how awful the situation is. <laughs> um, so so they, they're, they're all bought into the idea, but it's just because, because ours is an end-to-end -end digital traceability system, it touches every part of the catering operation from, you know, from the ingredient all the way through the other, to the other end. 
So it's not easy, you know, it's expensive um, and it's not easy to, to implement this. So um, it takes a lot of project management actually to even get this off the ground. So um, so they, they, they all believe in it. QA managers believe in it. The chefs believe in it. Um, and, the, and the decision makers believe in it too. But because it's such a big deal, uh, it has to go through so many layers of advocacy to get to a result. And let's talk about, I mean, your, your personal path. I mean, because obviously you, it seems to me that, it, was this your first business, your first startup, I mean, I mean, project? Yes. Okay, so clearly you chose like the most, I mean, a challenging project in history of humanity, right? So you're going to be building hardware. And <laughs> tell me a bit about how, I mean, I mean, personally, how did you went from, oh my God, I mean, these enterprise people, I mean, they are, I mean, potentially bureaucrats, I don't know them, but usually they are. And it's going to take so long to implement my machine in, in a catering environment. How, how challenging was that for you to, I mean, to, to embrace that and learn how to deal with these people? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it is definitely challenging uh, because I'm, I'm a chef, so I'm impatient and I want things to move ultra quickly, but uh, obviously not all organizations are like that. Um, So it has taught me to be, yeah, patient, I guess. Uh, I, I knew that enterprise sales were going to take a while, um, <clears throat> but, um, but I know that once we've, like our, our first system is up and running in about four weeks' time uh, with an airline caterer in Australia. And well, if you can prove that this is actually is, is happening, this is real, uh, then, then I'll happily sign up to make it happen as soon as possible because... I guess it's still because we can't benchmark ourselves against a similar system and say, well, we're doing what they're doing, but just a little bit different or a little bit better. We're doing something which I don't think anyone else has done before. So uh, despite their belief in the system or the concept, they still are just, you know, they can't quite imagine it because it's not been done before. Clearly. And I, I guess once you have the first airline, I mean, that, that's going to validate the whole business dramatically because, I mean, an airline is an airline regardless. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a small client and it's going to make the path for other airlines to, to go, well, if, this, if, this, if these clowns are using these, we, we should use it at the same time. So that's going to make life extremely easy, right? Well, <laughs> probably not extremely easy, but hopefully well, it'll a, a bit easier, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, okay, we, so we think that because, because this is a paradigm shift away from um, a very poor form of compliance, which is people running around with paper records at every uh, part of the process, uh, I, I genuinely believe this is a, a departure from that whole primitive state. And so once some clients are using it and they can have visibility across their entire food safety data, then... I believe a lot of other people will see this as a line in the sand um, that they have to cross. Okay, mind-blowing. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges. I have spoke to a few founders. I actually had a chat, I mean, two weeks ago with a founder, and he was cursing about, I didn't know how difficult it was to launch a startup that had to do with hardware. Um, mm -hmm. And it, that was his biggest complaint. Is I will, I will never never ever will do anything again with hardware. And I, I, I work in a few startups that is about apps and it's software and it's online. And that's actually kind of manageable. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the hardware area. How difficult has that been? And what did you learn during the process? Uh, the idea of our solution is to minimize the amount of 
people involved in the process. So even the largest caterer in Australia would probably only use maybe a hundred of these devices. So we don't have to lock in our designs and pay for plastic injection molding and um, a lot of those other challenges, nor nor find the capital to 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 pay a million dollars to pump out ten thousand units. You know, we're actually quite small volume, um, but we still have had to go through yeah extensive rounds of R and D to try and make sure that we've, our product is robust and uh, that it's going to work and it comes in at a reasonable um, cost of goods sold. Uh, I've, I've, made, I've used mo mostly local specialists, so an exceptional industrial designer um, and an electrical engineer who I found in a curious way. But, um, yeah, we are dealing with silicon moulding from Shenzhen and PCBs assembled in Shenzhen and, yeah, other parts. But... Um, I haven't actually found it to be too daunting. To be honest, the software is the scary part for me. <laughs> okay, why why is that? Well, the the hardware it follows a set of rules. You know, you, you want to achieve certain things. You need certain sensors. They need to talk to the the interface. That I, I can actually wrap my head, my non tech head, around that and understand sort of yeah, logically what do we need to do and what needs to be done. So. Um, it has taken a lot longer because we're again we've but the software is of an unspecified nebulous sort of state or shape you know it could be anything really um, unless with the hardware you can say well no if we put this diode here then it will do this and that will be good but with software it's all about um, it could be yeah it could be absolutely anything and it's up to us to Make the right decisions so we go through a lot of twists and turns trying to work out what is going to what's it going to be for the user and because of this hasn't been done before this is we can get a bit too detailed a bit too uh involved in the detail of what if the user does this and then if this happens but then if that happens then what should we do to thwart or you know take that into account and after a while we just realized we were getting too too in depth and we weren't we had to pull back from some of the, the feature um, the feature set of our MVP to make sure it was actually that when we test it, we can get real metrics rather than more problems. And I, and I guess the challenge that you face is that when you're going to introduce a product like yours, because it's not business to consumer and it's an enterprise level, I mean, you can't really make so many mistakes, no pressure, right? <laughs> I mean, you're dealing in a, in a real environment with real food, real chefs, there's planes moving around, so obviously that I mean that has to I mean increase the, the level of stress, right? Um, I, I don't know because I've never done this any other way. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of concern that we get it right, of course, but I think that's true for most people. Um, I, I guess in in one sense we the the optimistic way of looking at it is to say well this is a real process, one that currently exists, and we are, in a sense, mimicking the process but in a much different way. So we've got sort of guidelines for how this system should operate. It's not like we're designing something that has never existed before and is a completely ab abstract concept. So in a way, if we can just make sure we stay real to what our customers need and what their problems are and what we're trying to do, then we should, we should, we should be okay. Well, it's, it's very interesting. I was having an interview for the podcast before you with um, with Scal uh, Blackburn. She actually has a, a a food business where she sells insects. Okay, believe it or not, so it's insects for cooking. I mean, mind blowing. But one of the things she was telling me during the show was how um, 
how challenging it is to educate, I mean, people, right? And, and in your case, you're going to try to take chefs that have been doing things in one way for so long to tell them, okay, now I want you to use this machine. How has been, I mean, I mean, is that part of the equation and how challenging it is to, to get the grumpy old chef to say, hey, now stop what you're doing, get a piece of paper out and try to use this fancy cool machine? Uh, we, we actually haven't so far found it be, to be particularly difficult because essentially we are making their lives easier. And any time you can actually take a bit of stress away from a chef, they're, they're usually welcome you with open arms. <laughs> Um, so, so we had to make sure that, yeah, when we actually implement the system, it is actually genuinely going to make people's lives easier. And if we can, as I said, make sure we mimic current processes to make sure that we're not, the change impact is not too scary, then uh, the barriers of entry shouldn't be too great for those kind of people. But we, we, we have been talking to our early clients and, and suggesting to them that, <clears throat> that when we implement the system, you don't want chefs using these devices necessarily. Uh, you you would because chefs all they, what they what you want your chefs to be doing is cooking the food. You don't want them running around with documents or or devices to to follow this process. What you would do is have one or two or three um, core QA staff, quality assurance staff that are trained specifically to use these, and then you can budget and understand and hold accountable these few staff for doing it properly, and then get efficiencies in your your chef uh, in in your kitchen because the chefs can follow a, a workflow and not be interrupted with these issues and focus on their cooking. So from the chef's perspective, they, they love it. Um, I, I don't think there's a problem there. Okay, I, I, want, I want our audience to understand how complex is the whole thing of catering. And I'm looking at your website, looking at, at your bio, and you, was, you were an executive chef um, um, in charge of Qantas First Class uh, and Business Class International. Okay, tell me a little bit, in, in for normal people, they're not chefs, we don't speak your language. How messy is to feed, let's say, I mean, a whole plane? Okay, I mean, you, you're domestic also, chef in, in, um, in other airlines. Tell me a little bit how messy is regarding food. How does it start the process for, I mean, for you to plan an international trip? Oh, yeah, it's just probably a, a topic for a different conversation because it's very large. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not messy per se, but it is incredibly uh, complicated. It's really, really complicated depending on how many airline carriers you are servicing and how many flights they have. They all operate with potentially different menus and those menus might have, yeah, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 dishes on them. Those dishes might have three or four components each and those components might have up to 12 ingredients. So from a procurement perspective, from a storage perspective, from cooking perspective, yeah, it's, it's very, very complex. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's it's a real challenge. It's it's very hard. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm looking at the machine here. That, I mean, um, the is QI meat. I mean, meat chef is is mind blowing because it looks. I mean, sounds funny, but I mean, it looks extremely professional, and it looks like something that is is is, is mind blowing that didn't exist before in the in, in the market. Now, how did you come up? I mean, you hire a designer, well, they're, they're, but I lost you there. Yeah, I'm here. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Tell me. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say that we, we do actually have a lot of competitors, but they're just not in any of our target markets or virtu have virtually no presence whatsoever. 
Um, there are competitors out there that have designed perhaps similar devices, but they don't have the combination of sensors that we do. They don't have a sophisticated touchscreen, um, but also they can't read barcoded labels, which is what else our product requires in order to give full traceability. But also they have solved very easy problems, you know, problems that exist in, say, a cafe where you can you decide that you have to be able to prove that you are more compliant than you need to be, so you can take temperature of a product and say that you've checked it at a certain temperature at a certain time. Now that's, to me, a very, very easy problem to solve and it's been solved many times before. Um, so we are aware that there are plenty of competitors out there, but none of them have been able to produce a system that works in large volume, high complexity cases. Um, okay, and yeah. what about the design of the product? So, I mean, there's, I mean, there's two parts of of the machine. Am I getting this right? Looking at the website, there's this, this two like a screen and there's like a stand up. I mean, I mean, system. Can you describe the machine a little bit for people that can actually see your website right now? Sure. Well, our website our website's about to be updated, so maybe you should wait. Come back in a couple of weeks because it'll explain it a little better. That was very rudimentary. Uh, it's it's basically a handheld device, which is a pistol grip with a touchscreen and a, um, a thermocouple um, probe, or temperature probe, or a sensor for superficial temperatures and a barcode scanner. It's a little bit like the stock taking guns you see people use in supermarkets, but specifically yeah. for this purpose. Uh, and that is basically the the, the main the conduit for our, our software, with, and, and it exists at, in the form of various different apps for the different parts of the catering process. So a loading dock manager would have one of these devices in the loading dock, and he would use it for receiving food, applying labels, reading labels, taking temperatures, and then <clears throat> then the people in the kitchen would use the same device but with a different app, and that's the same for maybe four or five, six different sectors with six different apps. Um, with a web portal that sits behind it for admin to make sure that all the data that's flowing through it is correct. Um, but what it will give you at the end, because all of these CCPs, if you remember what I said about them, if you've used these apps to register all this data, then at the end you have a QA manager who can press a button and can actually track back digitally through uh, a dish, through back, or back through all of its food safety data, through all the processes, back to the ingredients from the supplier, so they can actually have... Yeah, a full full visibility across the provenance of that dish from end to end, um, and then for for product recall, that's really exciting because currently you can't. It's very very difficult to do a product recall because you're relying on a series of pieces of paper that may not actually tell the truth or be complete. So this will allow you to look back and find out exactly what happened to that dish, and then if you find out that there's nothing wrong with what you've done as a caterer, that's perhaps probably an ingredient going into it, then you can full trace to find out every single flight or event or customer that that um, ended up for. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, but the, the heart of it, the, the, the device remains the, the main point of operation for all of the staff operationally. So I, I, I guess also from a, from a legal point of view, I'm not a legal expert, but I mean, this actually solves a lot of problems potentially, I mean, of having a liability, I mean, people getting sick on a plane or something like that, I mean, allows to, to cover your, I mean, your, your ass a little bit also as a chef, right? Uh, well, we, we, we don't want to start making claims about that until we fully test our system, but we believe that this is a radical departure from the current state of compliance, which means that if yeah, the, for the very first documents that you get asked to produce, if there is a food poisoning allegation, is your is your paper records, um, and then it's a matter of yeah. Well, it's I don't want to get into how that all 
but um, but we believe that this will not only give you unprecedented level of defence in that in that instance, but also perhaps might reduce insurance premiums in the future because you can demonstrate an un, uh, an un, you mitigated risk to a much higher degree. Um, so yeah, hopefully it does give you higher uh, a more robust legal defence than previously. Okay, let's talk a little bit about about the process of building the, the machine and the software. What kind of mistakes did you did you face, or what kind of oopsie daisies did you made along the way? Obviously, you thought this for four, I mean, for three to four years, but did you screw up at some stage? Did you make mistakes? Did you end up, I mean, wasting money in different areas? I mean, what kind of, I mean, process that you took that you could actually change slightly? Uh, well, it would have made, if, if I'd actually been um, in I guess, technical circles, like if I knew a lot of technical people, such as, you know, computer programmers or designers or whatever, then if I could have formed a team really early on to start building this and that would have propelled us forward a lot faster. Um, as, as it were, I, you know, I, I simply didn't have those kind of contacts. So I was looking for a technical co-founder for quite some time. And then I considered having it developed by a third party developer, not, not the software, not the hardware, but the software. But then it came, I became clear that the software that I was building because of its complexity, it would just cost way more money than I could possibly raise to throw at it. So um, so it wasn't a mistake, but, yeah, I think getting, getting a technical team together really early on is... Um, any other mistakes along the way? Maybe just... Um, I think just, just the whole idea of what does constitute your MVP and trying to be religiously focused on the, the feature set of an MVP and try not to get seduced into building in additional features, even though customers have requested them. Like I knew this was occurring, but we already have just chopped out uh, quite a large part of some of our feature set because we realized that when we implement our product in a few weeks' time, then the change process for the client will be greater and we will be sort of testing parts of the process that we weren't originally setting up to, to do or the value proposition will become confused. So potentially just, just being really clear as possible about what are we actually trying to do, what is the value proposition, and what constitutes our MVP, and sticking to that without yeah, deviating too much, because we certainly did that a little bit. <laughs> and you try to get, I mean, you were telling me that you're trying to get a technical co-founder. How, I mean, how did that start? I mean, how does someone get, I mean, to try, I mean, how, how someone gets a technical co-founder? So say again, does that so you, you try to get a technical co-founder with, I mean, during the process, right? Hmm. And what happened? I mean, why did you end up fail? Was it too complex? You didn't find the right team? Or, I mean, how did you start it? I mean, if I have to find tomorrow a technical co-founder, what would be the, the first step? And tell me what you're trying to achieve. I mean, how do you try to find this person? Uh, well, I think that if, if I were to go back and do all this again, then if we remember that I said that I took a four years of thinking about this and if I had had my epiphany that I would build this perhaps two years into that then the best thing I could have done would be to start attending meetups and start to just generally build my network in the startup scene um, well in advance of trying to kick this off because the contacts I've now got um, of people who could or would or have come um, people on my technical team I only met them through attrition, you know, through a couple of years of being in the startup scene. Um, so I, I, I honestly don't, I can't give many tips about the best way to find a technical co-founder because I found it really hard. Um, and as I said, the only reason why I've now got 
um, the ability to appoint people in those kind of roles is because I've just kind of met them along the way. Um, yeah, so instead of just quitting my job and jumping into it, um, perhaps I could have already cast around and built a bit of a network of people before I was going to uh, do that. So you actually, I mean, you, you left your job just to work on this, right? Well, I, I was actually working part-time as a um, professional cookery teacher at the Cordon Bleu Cookery School. I was kind of doing some work at some various clients' places because I wanted to actually research how their systems operated. So I worked at convention centers and stadiums to A, earn a little bit of money and B, moreover, to understand how their systems deviated or were distinct from the ones in airline catering because I was convinced that our product would work for them but didn't know how. Um, so I did that for a, for a while, but then I um, but then I broke my leg uh, paintballing, which is not highly recommended. But for me, it was a really good thing because I woke up the following morning and I couldn't work because I couldn't walk. Um, so for th I had to just not go anywhere, and I just was able to focus on my business. And I found that I could because because I suddenly had five or six or seven days of momentum, I could get way much, uh, way more, uh, way more achieved. So. Um, so yeah, I don't recommend people go out there and break their legs in order to get motivated, but, um, <laughs> I'm actually going to use that as the title of the podcast. I was thinking, I mean, what's going to be the title of the podcast? Like how to break your leg during paintball brought this <laughs> founder to, to launch. Oh, it, was, it, was, it was, it was great for me because I, I said, I thought that I had a really good balance. I was working three days a week and I was working on my startup three days a week. And I thought that was a really good balance. But then only once I was forced to work full time on it, did I realize how much more I could achieve with the impetus. Because with, with enterprise clients, you can't just call them up and tell with you uh, Thursday afternoon. You know, they're going to tell you when they can meet. And, if I, and I couldn't do it because I was working. Um, so I couldn't move forward with my clients because I wasn't there for them. So, yeah. Okay, so you, you break your leg and, I mean, you're sitting there with your, with your broken leg. That I, I think that's the best part of the story so far. And you break your leg. Tell me about the, the, I mean, you are a master dealing with stress, but obviously the stress in the kitchen is a stress that, in a kind of way, you can control, right? You are the boss of the kitchen. is your kitchen. is your environment. Tell me about dealing with the stress of, like, holy cow, now I'm going to be doing this. I don't know anything about hardware. I don't know anything about electronics or software and I'm not working right now, and I'm going to be doing this full-time. How do you deal with that stress level? Um, I, I didn't find it particularly difficult, to be honest. I think because I've really been in um, almost un indescribably stressful environments before, so I guess I've, I'm kind of used to dealing with it. The stress is a little bit different. As you said, in the kitchen, it's, it's way more immediate. It can be incredibly intense, but it's usually got an outcome or a point of resolution. Um, the stress of a startup is a bit more insidious, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think when people talk about about being a founder, the, who is passionate, and people talk a lot about passion as a founder. Now, I'm not really that passionate about the whole passion thing, apart from the fact that 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 has definitely helped me to ignore the stress or carry through it. Because I okay, go, no, I am I am 100% um, convinced that this is my my path. This is my mission, and I'm passionate about it. And if it gets stressful, you just, I just say, well, yeah, tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll feel a bit better and I do and I keep on going. One of the things that I find interesting, people that I'm talking lately is, um, and I'm, I've been interviewing people that are in all different weird, I mean, industries, um, is how much do you actually research 
the need for this? I mean, you're telling me that you actually went to a different kind of area to see if they need the product and learn the processes. How vital has been for you to, to understand the full scope of the industry for your product to fit, I mean, their needs? Uh, it was, yeah, it was absolutely essential. Uh, I, I did a huge amount of research. I, as I said, I went to visit a lot of different clients. I did a lot of questionnaires. I did a global survey on my website to try and get uh, more international data um, and really clean data. Uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely essential. I, I, and and that, that was, it was interesting because you could say, well, because I know my market and my product and my users so well, I don't need to do that. But it, I already knew that I couldn't say for sure that convention centers had the same problem. So I had to go and work there for two months. Um, I knew stadiums had a similar problem. So I went and worked there and, um, I slowly worked my way around because when it came down to it, I found that, yeah, this was a very niche thing. Um, and I couldn't say for sure that there, that this could easily be, uh, implemented in stadiums because it will require some adaptation. So at least I can be realistic with my investors or my shareholders about the fact that no, we're focusing just on airlines and convention centers, but then we'll look at other sectors. Um, because I know that there's, there's challenges with those other sectors. I can't promise that this will work for everyone because it won't. And, and I know that because I did the research. So it was important. So, David, just to clarify, when you said to me that you went to a convention center, you actually went to work in a convention center for, for a while to understand the processes, not just yeah, ask them? There. No, I worked there for a couple of months as just a, just a chef, just a basic casual chef alongside anyone else. Um, I mean, they, they knew who I, who I, well, what level I was at, but I just said, look, I just want to work here and um, just work hard and get the job. Okay, this is such a badass move. I mean, um, you I went more or less like stealth, right? Sorry, I'm interrupting you. I mean, you, so let me get this clear. You went there to work as a normal chef. I mean, you were obviously higher than a normal chef, but you were there just in a stealth move to understand how they work. <laughs> well, it sounds a little bit more dashing than it really was, but yeah, essentially, yes. <laughs> Okay, but, but technically you chose the convention center for that purpose, right? You could be working in any place that you wanted. You didn't do that for, for, for the job, but also for understanding how these people, I mean, are, are, are running the business, right? Um, yeah, but I also knew that one of my, they were using a competitive system in a certain way and I was keen to use it. <laughs> uh, you see, it's pretty, pretty badass, pretty stealth mode. Oh, I love that. Instead of like going and asking, like use your system for one hour, let me actually work here, get paid, and I analyze my competition. Yeah. That's so badass. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit about, about, about once you, I mean, when did you come up with, with a point where you go, okay, this is ready to start, I mean, I mean pitching to, to airlines uh, and where you are at the moment? Um, so I missed most of that question, but oh, where am I at with my clients? Is that a question? No, no, no. I mean, so, so tell me when, when did you, I mean, to what point you, you realized the product was ready to, I mean, to, to test or actually to approach, uh, your potential, I mean, clients to, to pitch the idea. Um, yeah, it's a good question. And it's hard to say, um, the product that we're developing, as I said, it's, it's kind of like the shifting sands of the desert. You know, it's hard to actually say we have fully completed our products because it's it's really uh, in and uh, constantly evolving, I guess. But um, we it was more about where our clients could we get our clients into the right place for this because we're not talking about just flicking the switch and just chucking in a system. This is a, a really big change process for them. So ma ma managing or for, you know managing 
to get our client to our first client to um, work out and is satisfied with all of the research about the impact to their business, the change processes to the implementation plan, to the flow charts, to the FSDs, to the everything. So they could be satisfied that this is really going to work because we're not talking about just a nice to have thing. This is a fundamental rewrite of their entire food safety manual or the, the entire way they deal with food safety. So it's, it takes a lot of dealing with your client to get them in a good place for this. Uh, so that was more the question, not so, so much about can, when can we finish the product? You know, it's a bit simplistic. It's very interesting because obviously your clients have to believe in the path of the product. And by, I mean, by default, they have to believe in you because you, I mean, in a kind of way, I think that you are the product, right? You are, I mean, the person that realized the problem and the solution. So I think that storytelling and education is super important to inspire people to believe that if they jump mm. on board, I mean, they're going to be part of this product that's only going to get better and better and better. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's I mean, the, the, me being, it's interesting how chefs all have a very deep sense of trust for each other. So when I walk into a facility and I introduce myself and they know, you know that I'm a chef as well, they're remarkably um, open and transparent and trusting and helpful. Like they really, because they feel like you're one of them, you know, you're on their side. Um, that's why we always knew that we wouldn't be able to employ staffs who are not ex-catering because yeah, I, I used to have, reps come into my kitchen trying to sell me hard or whatever. And if they walked in wearing a suit and they weren't, and I could tell they weren't a chef, I just wouldn't trust them and I'd tell them to leave. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the, 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 the fact that I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a chef and I'm in catering means that we, we, we can develop very, very quick bonds uh, and, and a lot of trust with our clients, which is really important when it comes to them dropping a lot of money on this kind of system that's unyet, as yet untested. Okay, and, and, and just, I mean, just to finish, I mean, a few more questions is when, when you're trying to, to, to pitch this product, I mean, to enterprise, uh, what's the ROI for them? Is, is, I mean, for the chef, is it time, is less stress? I mean, they're saving time, they're saving less stress, or is, when you say that it makes their life easier, I mean, it makes their life easier in, in what level? I mean, how do you actually measure in this, um, in, in, in time saved for, for, a, for a business? Sure. Well, yeah, our value proposition, it's, yeah, it's a good question and it's important that we look at what that really means. Um, <clears throat> essentially, when it comes down to it, now we've got a few aspects to our value proposition, one of which is that it will save money. It does that is through labour because there are perhaps 50 chefs running around with bits of paper, but we're saying, well, you want maybe two people full-time to be dealing with this and take all of that duty away from the chefs. So, in doing so, you should be able to reduce the shift time by, say, half an hour a day. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but when you've got 50 chefs on two shifts every day the entire year, that's a uh, significant um, money. But, but also, it, um, it gives you a huge reputational boost because it means that you can actually, you can actually stand by your food safety data and it's true and it's correct and you, are, you look very good. Um, but it also, from a board perspective, especially for multinational caterers, it's a huge reducer of risk. And when you're talking about the main risk of an airline caterer having, you know, people get sick on a plane, then this is this is really big stuff. So, um, so when it comes to making chefs' lives easier, well, that's important too because when I'm talking to the executive chef of a facility and I'm explaining how I can take all of that pain away from your chefs and we can give it to a few QA staff and we can um, make it. in some sense, is not so concerned about risk because he's just got everything to deal with on a daily basis. But it does, it's important still. 
Yeah, and I, and I guess they understand. I mean, the chefs will understand automatically what you're talking about. You don't have to really, I mean, explain too much the problem. They already live with the problem daily. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Okay, fantastic. David, I mean, just to finish, if people want to know more, I mean, I don't think that our audience have, I mean, I mean, airlines, okay, but if people want to know more about you and about your business, where they can actually find more information about, uh, about yeah, what you're doing. We're just updating our website. Um, it's www.qachef, so it's Q-A-C-H-E-F dot com. Um, and I'm also going to be starting up a blog on uh, the website firsttimefounder.pro, first time with one T. Um, so I'm just going to be probably sharing some of my lessons I've learned that in catering that I'm transferring into my startup uh, startup uh, business. So I love that. And if you can deal with the stress of yeah. being a chef, I mean, by all means, a startup must be dead easy for you. <laughs> Oh, it's certainly got its challenges, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, awesome. Fun. David, thank you so much, I mean, for, for, for the interview. I, I love your passion. I love how much you research the industry. And, and yeah, I, I can't wait to, I mean, to know more about what you're working on. Thank you so much, mate. Great. Thanks very much, Gabriel. I really appreciate it. Okay, no worries, mate. Bye. Bye. And there you go, guys. Show number four with David. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find more information about what I'm doing, more shows, please subscribe or follow me on Facebook, on LinkedIn. I have no freaking idea where you can actually follow me, but go and check it out or go and check out the website startupfounders.com.au. My goal is to build the largest, the most comprehensive directory and resource for startups in Australia. And you never know, maybe in the future, move around worldwide and world dominations. But right now, it's all about getting awesome guests, very interesting founders, entrepreneurs, and hopefully help you guys in your path to build a better life, a better startup, a better startup, and hopefully also improve my accent and my grammar when I'm talking here in the podcast. Okay, show number four. Thank you so much. I will see you in show number five. And yeah, stay healthy, work hard, and be happy. Bye.